This is the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody, it's Friday, February 24th. I hope that you're taking care of yourself today. I hope that you're getting ready for a magnificent weekend. I'm Santita Jackson. This is the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. We've got the mayoral election coming up on Tuesday. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Can you believe it's been four years since the last election? Well, believe it, and you can vote right now. Vote right up to and through the 28th of February. That is on Tuesday. So please, you can vote in all of your wards. Get out and vote Chicago. Get out and vote Chicago. We're going to be talking about this race today. On Monday, I'm going to have Commissioner Brandon Johnson still trying to get the mayor and still trying to get Congressman Garcia, still trying, still trying. That having been said, and we've been able to let you hear from a majority of the candidates. And, uh, they're all great people, and um, you got to vote for someone. And some people are talking about voting strategically because you have nine candidates. Uh, it's not like you have a bad one in the bunch. Okay, and so now folks are saying we need to vote strategically, something like ranked choice voting, your first, your second, your third choice, because it does appear that there will there will be a runoff. What about ranked choice, ranked choice voting, ranked choice? Do you know what it is? We're going to be talking with David Daly, New York Times bestselling author and senior fellow at Fair Vote about that. And then we're going to talk about critical race theory. A lot of people have pushed back. Well, some people, but a big chunk of folks, uh, support Paul Vallis and Law and Order and his pushback on what? Critical race theory, his support of charter schools and vouchers, and on and on and on. So we're going to be talking about that today on the Santita Jackson Show. Um, it appears he has made some negative comments about critical race theory. So what do you think about that? And critical race theory at the end of the day is about uh, telling, not just from the perspective of the oppressor, but of the oppressed. Yeah, so what do you think about that? Should we be talking about what really happened in slavery? What really happened to the indigenous community? What really, what really, why people from the south, south of the border call uh, Texas and California and Arizona and New Mexico El Norte? <laughs> There's a whole lot to talk about on the Santita Jackson show. And what do you feel about a mayor who might push back on that? Who might go to Santa's on you? I don't know. Might jump with a smile. I don't know. We're going to talk about that in the second hour of the show. So let's get right to it. On today, Friday, February 24th, 2023, sending you much love, AM 950 Radio in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and all of my brothers and sisters here in Chicago at AM at Eight twenty. Of course, we will be giving you wall-to-wall coverage on election night. You don't want to miss that. But, of course, they've had lots and lots of snow in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Hope that you're digging out. Hope that you're safe today. All right, everybody in Chicago, we're going to have a high of 28 degrees, partly sunny. In Minneapolis-St. Paul, 12 degrees, partly sunny. In the NBA, they will be returning from the all-star break, everybody. Uh, that's right. The Hornets will be playing the Timberwolves, and the Nets will be playing the Bulls. Cannot wait. Well, this all-star break to be over. I want some basketball. In the NHL, however, the Chicago uh, team will be playing the Sharks tomorrow. And the Wilds played the Blue Jackets yesterday. Shut them out two to nothing. And they'll be facing off against the Maple Leafs tonight, everybody. The Poor People's Campaign. 
they are demanding that the Department of Justice uh, probe over 100 deaths in West Virginia prisons. In West Virginia prisons, everybody. Think about that. What is happening there? And this is the first anniversary, of course, the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So we've got a lot to talk about today on the Santita Jackson Show. Um, what's going to happen with that? Where will, uh, when will this conflict end? We don't know. We don't know. But many people are saying, even the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Austin, said that ultimately you're going to have to negotiate your way out of this conflict. You're not going to shoot your way out. It's not going to be one on the battlefield, he said in the CNN interview from yesterday. Federal officials released an initial report yesterday concluding that the toxic train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio, was completely, completely preventable, everybody. The report found that one of the train's cars carrying plastic pellets was heated by a hot axle that sparked the initial fire, according to uh, Jennifer Homedy, the chair of the safety board. And remember, the train, everybody, was 1.9 miles long, nearly 150 cars. Even if you wanted to stop it, it would take miles, right? It's just simple physics. Think about velocity. Think about that, everybody. And those are just some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson show and the Supreme Court. They're at it again. They can weaken workers' rights, everybody, their right to strike. Keep a lookout on everything. That is the only way that this uh, that this system works, everybody. Oh, and before I forget, under massive pressure, guess what Northern, uh, excuse me, Norfolk Southern did. The train company that is responsible for the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, and in this region. Well, guess what? Under massive pressure, they agreed to pay to grant paid sick leave to more than three thousand unionized workers. So there is a bright spot. All right, Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams, I see you, sis, and I hear you, sis, and we love having you on the Santita Jackson Show. Of course, she's the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton, New York. We just love, 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 love having her, and um, we need some good news today. You know, our, our brothers and sisters all over the country got snowed. I think there's even snow in L.A. You saw snow in front of a Hollywood sign. What? crazy. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. What's well, wonderful hearing your voice today. What is the good news? Wonderful hearing, so it's always good to be on. So today I want to talk a little bit about Let It Breathe. I can remember during the COVID-19 crisis, you know, years ago, I can admit I've never been a club person. Unlike 50 Cent says, you will never find me in the club. But all of that changed during quarantine when in March 2020, DJ D-Nice decided to turn on his on his turntables and his web camera and introduce us to club quarantine. It was the first time that the club was able to come to my crib. <laughs> and it was in that moment <laughs> that I realized maybe clubbing wasn't so bad as long as I could do it at home. But one of the things I remember about D-Nice, whenever there was a particular song that he wanted to let play out or a song that moved his spirit, he would always say, I'm going to let that breathe and spin it just a little while longer. 
Well, I'm reminded of the text in the book of Psalms that says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And couldn't we all take a moment just to let it breathe? Couldn't we all use a little bit more breathing room when we're suffocated by bills, when we are choked out by deadlines and our poor choices? Couldn't we all take some time to just let it breathe? The psalm says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What does it mean to let it breathe? To let it breathe, one scholar says it's to allow someone to breathe means more than just letting their body get its required amount of oxygen. It also means to allow them the space and air to express themselves. It doesn't mean that someone has to listen, but it does mean that one should not smother them. You let them breathe. So whether you're healing it, helping it, or hearing it, you have to let it breathe. We could all use more breathing room. In other words, when we let it breathe, we give room for restoration, contemplation, and affirmation. And when we look at this text, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, we also see our ability to breathe leads us to adoration. And I'm excited about that. According to the work Psalms for Black Lives, let everything that has breath, the concluding command of verse 6 of the Psalter, it points to the dimension of not only humanity, but all creation, meaning air, insects, all are called to praise the Lord. Everything that has breath is designed and even commanded to praise God. Isn't that interesting? And here's the prerequisite for praise. All you have to have is breath. (laughs) If you can inhale and exhale today, the only requirement to praise is to breathe in and out. But what is a praise? Praise means to express warm approval and admiration to anything. We can praise anyone or anything. We can praise a child for receiving a good grade. We can praise a colleague for a job well done. We can praise a pet for being obedient to a command. We can praise a person for their courage and determination in the face of difficulty. We can praise a loved one in an effort to encourage them. Receiving praise is an affirmation of your accomplishments and skills. So when you're praised, It's feedback that you're doing well in the eyes of someone else. Now, imagine this same concept in the context of God. When we give praise to God, we are providing God with feedback that God is doing well in our lives. Here's the deal, though. God already knows God is doing well because way back in the beginning, God did some things, made a sun, made moon, made the stars, stepped back, checked his own work and said, that's good. God knows God is doing all things well, but our praise and our gratitude and appreciation for God takes it to another level. So I want somebody to know today that maybe you think things are not working in your favor. Here's what I found out. Praise is like a wormhole. It's like a boom tube that gets our our wishes and our desires from earth to heaven. And so you can curve heaven. You can push heaven a little bit in your direction when you praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. When I was in Kenya preaching a revival, there was a dog walking the perimeter of the tent. And this dog was in service the whole time, just walking around, sitting, observing the people. Well, guess what, Santita? When I opened the doors of the church and asked everybody to make a choice to make Jesus is their choice. Nobody moved. But just in the distance, I saw coming down the aisle, that little mangy dog. He came right down the aisle when the offer was given and sat right in front of the altar. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If a dog can praise, why can't we? Amen, amen, and amen. If a dog can praise, why can't we? Oh, my goodness. Why, oh, why can't I? 
If I can go over that rainbow, oh, come on. If birds can fly over the rainbow, why can't I? Well, you can. Go on and just be grateful today. Go on and, go on and be great. I love you, Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams. How can we worship with you on the weekends? I love you too. You can worship with me on YouTube at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays and uh, on YouTube. And we would love to have you all come visit us virtually. And if you're ever in the Bridgehampton, New York area, come visit us personally. I love it. Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams, everybody, the First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton, New York. Get that book, I See You, Sis, by Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams. You don't want to miss it. It's going to bless you, ladies. It's going to lift you up in particular. And my general, our gentlemen, brothers, it will help you to understand just the blessing, the gift that God made us to be, to, to be with you so we should be with each other. I love it. That's right, everybody. We have got Dr. Shanina Knighton, infection preventionist. Wow. Indeed, she's a registered nurse. She's a research scientist. She has been teaching at college. And um, and now you are you find yourself in the midst of, just 85 miles away, from an environmental disaster. Let me just ask you, does that concern you that East Palestine is so close to where you live? Or is it something that you say is far enough away for me not to worry about it? So I think the thing is, is like that's subjective, right? Because I don't think anything is ever far enough for us to not have to worry about it, Um, especially when we're looking at situations such as how I mentioned before, Bedford, Ohio, where the metal plant, you know, exploded. And that's about like literally 20 minutes away from my home. And you have Warren, which is about an hour away from my home, but it's 76 miles away from East Palestine where a boiler plant exploded. And we like, what is going on in Ohio? You know, the fact that we have had these three issues within the last past three weeks, you know. And so that's very subjective. Um, Perry, Ohio is near, and that's the nuclear plant that's up the street. And so you look at situations like these and you just know that we're not far removed from it. And I think that has always been my concern, not a place of living out of fear, but it helps us to understand how brittle we are uh, when it comes to involving each other. And so, Santita, it's interesting because you mentioned something that's important and it's not necessarily in the vein of infection prevention and control, but it's a reminder of the things that we don't see. So similarly to how with the bare eye, you cannot see pathogens such as bacteria, fungus, and viruses that are harmful to our bodies, but we know practices that we need to do in order to be able to keep us safe. It is that reminder for each individual that has a part in society, right, that gratitude for them because we don't see what they do on a day-to-day basis. So when there is, uh, you know, civil engineers that have to make sure that, you know, the, the tension and the force and the acceptability of us to be able to drive across the bridge occurs every day, we don't think about that stuff. We take that for granted. The railroad workers, you know, that have to make sure that the tracks, you know, are compliant and that everything is going to go smooth. There's so much that requires us to depend on each other in the day-to-day. Even in food prep, when you're saying to yourself, the people that are in the manufacturing plants doing what they need to do, 
them ensuring that we don't get foodborne illnesses because they're practicing proper hand hygiene and doing what they need to do. So I just say in the spirit of gratitude and continuing to talk about what you and Pastor talked about today is just really understanding that with those things that we cannot see, the same way that we should be worried because it can impact us is also the same reason why we have to practice gratitude for the things that don't impact us because we have someone that is doing their job. And that includes our sanitation folks to make sure we got clean water, to make sure our trash is removed. These all go into infection prevention and control. And I think as we recognize that every single living thing or living organ, like everything you know, on this planet for the most part that we may consume, may interact with, it has some sort of life form that can be, you know, either something that's going to help our immune systems and help our bodies or it's going to hurt us. And so how do you practice gratitude for those individuals to make sure that we are consumers of more good than more bad? So I just have that to say in the notion of gratitude today because it just seems to be very fitting. But when I think about a East Palestine, it's not gratitude because it's not here, but it is gratitude in the fact that these individuals are brave to acknowledge what's going on, to speak out about what's going on. You have people, you know, such as you, Santita, that are highlighting these tragedies because, yes, there are other places in the United States, not just afar, that is a East Palestine that we may not hear on the news, we may not even get any inkling that something is going on unless someone goes to social media or goes to a other, another outlet and bring it to our attention, unfortunately. And I think because of that, that's more of a reason why I preach prevention, because none of us know who lives in those small towns or those unseen areas where resources may not reach. Mm. Dr. Shanina Knighton, everybody. Hey, Dr. Nita. Hey, Dr. Nita. And I have a very quick question for you because I've got about 90 seconds before we get out of here. Um, you know, they set up these clinics. Well, you know what? I'll wait till next week. But ruminate. Just think about this. They set up, the, the state of Ohio set up a, a clinic for the people of East Palestine. And they, of course, it was populated by nurses and doctors. But then the doctors said, we're not equipped to deal with what we're seeing. So they had to send these people to toxicologists. Can you just quickly tell us what that means? Yes, that means that, for example, a toxicologist, and Santita, this had to do with what we were talking last week, and you said, should the people be boiling the water? And I was like, I can't even guarantee that because they potentially could be ingesting fumes. Being seen by a toxicologist, meaning that they have been exposed to some sort of, like, toxicity, you know, and when you are exposed to toxicity and you need to see a toxicologist, that is somebody that literally has this strong understanding of what, you know, what toxics or, you know, what harmful things do to human beings or other living organisms. And so you want somebody on your team like that because they can think about what the harmful effects of chemical agents, you know, that these people have been exposed to 
can do to their bodies and recommend like proper treatment. It's almost like when, you know, somebody say, oh, well, you need to put milk in your eyes for this or you need to do this in order to be able to get poison out of your system. These are individuals that specialize in that. And so in this particular instance, when you were mentioning that, I said, I said, I can't even give advice on that, Santita, because this is out of the range of typically what I would treat because you're bringing chemicals in there. And I'm not a chemistry major whatsoever. And this is specialized. I don't practice it. I just... I know. Look, I still think you know more than I know because, look, I just know... I would know to send somebody to a toxicologist because I I couldn't do anything for it to understand, like, how it's impacting their body. Like, our bodies is made up of chemicals, but they can understand what that toxic environment would do or the adverse effects that it would have on the body. Oh, David Daly's coming up as we talk about right choice voting here in Chicago. Wow, back in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Let's talk about this Chicago mayoral race. It's the national race. People all over the country and indeed a lot of folks from around the world want to see what's going to happen here. Um, Will the incumbent mayor make it into what many people believe will be the primary? Will this insurgent candidate, um, Paul Vallis, Will he be able to get 50% of the vote? And he just might be able to do it if people vote strategically. Then, then again, so could Chewie Garcia. So could Brandon Johns. We don't know. Well, what is ranked choice voting? What is strategic voting? Now, see, I read this article in Chicago Magazine, which is very mainstream. It's not Ebony and Jet, but it's Chicago. Get it? And so when I saw this article that said that, that argued for you to vote strategically. I said, wow, now, on the south and west sides, we're not being told this, but we are looking at nine candidates. And it's a very interesting field because you have one white candidate, you have an Hispanic candidate, and seven black candidates. So the black vote is splintered for the first time in a long, long, long time. So what does that mean? And so it's interesting. This article brings this up, and uh, it's very wonderfully written, Edward Robert McClellan wrote for Chicago Magazine. It goes like this. Sophia King, the alder woman of the Fourth Ward, he argued that she would make an excellent mayor of Chicago. He said, look, her approach to public safety is in the middle of Willie Wilson and Brandon Johnson. Willie Wilson, of course, law and order, hunt them down, you know, the criminals down like rabbits. Of course, he had a son who was murdered in 1995, and Brandon Johnson, treatment, not trauma. He said, wait a minute, Uh, she has an approach that makes him feel good. We can uplift police and hold them accountable, she said in a January 19th WGN debate. And indeed, she's impressed a lot of people, a lot of people. But now, um, he, after he gave her all of these accolades, said, I am not going to be voting for her. Because she cannot win. So what does that mean? What does that mean? 
He said, I won't be voting for King on February 26th because she can't win. She's raised only one-tenth of what the mayor's been able to raise. But... So I want to make my vote count. Now, in other places, New York City, you have what you call right choice voting. You have people who vote strategically. What do you think about that? Do you think that's something that should be employed here? What does all of that mean, and how could it impact Chicago politics, um, state politics, county politics, national politics? How could it? What difference would it make if we had ranked choice voting, if we voted strategically? Here in Chicago. Of course, we have the brilliant New York Times bestselling author of Brett Est, that's right, the true story of the secret plan to steal our democracy and unrigged how Americans are fighting back to save democracy. Two great books that you need to get. Of course, he's a senior fellow at Fair Vote. We've missed him, haven't seen him in a while, haven't talked to him in a while, but he is never too far from us because no one does greater work in this particular space than my dear brother, beloved David Daly. Good morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, well, you know, you're home here, so there you go. Thank you. So talk to me. I mean, we have got nine people running for office here in Chicago. Nine, nine. But it's interesting. You're watching. We'll be discussing this at the top of the hour. Um, The... uh, you now have the, you know, the, the leading, uh, well, the first news who has uh, a plurality of the votes, according to the polls, is Paul Vallis, uh, the only white person running in the race, which is interesting. And um, so there's that. And we're trying to find out, you know, exactly um, how all this will shake out. And so now in Chicago Magazine, which is like New York Magazine, the New Yorker, like, you know, these you have these high-toned magazines for these big cities. Um, now there's someone who's making the argument, wait a minute, I'm going to vote strategically. Even though I really like this candidate, he can't win, but there's someone who I want to at least get into the runoff. Talk to me about ranked choice voting. Talk to, me, talk to us about voting strategically. What is that about? Whenever you have nine candidates in a field... <laughs> Or sometimes more, right? I mean, your mayoral elections in Chicago have oftentimes had even more candidates than this. Um, uh, U.S. Senate primaries, U.S. House primaries. Whenever you have nine, a dozen, even more candidates in a race, a couple of things happen. First, it becomes possible for someone to win with less than 50% of the vote. So somebody can move on without having a real majority of voters. Somebody can win an election even though more people voted for somebody else. That is not majority rule. That is plurality rule. And whenever a plurality candidate wins, it means that voters have had to engage in the kind of calculus that Mr. McClellan is talking about in that Chicago Magazine piece. You're weighing all of this strategic stuff in your mind. You have to say, well, I really want this person to win, but I don't want that person to win. I'm afraid if I cast my vote for the person I really want, I'm going to help elect the person I don't want. Or if there's five black candidates in a race and one white candidate, it means that the vote could be splintered among the five black candidates and the white candidate wins. Or it means that you have to study the polls to have a sense of whether you're wasting your vote. And as we all know, the polls don't make a lot of clarity 
or always work anyway. So ranked choice voting is a tool that gives voters the power to rank a field in order. Instead of voting for one candidate, you put several in order, one, two, three. We all know how to rank one, two, three. Really simple thing to do. We all have a handful of favorites in a field. So it's a, you know, it's a simple tool that takes away all of that calculus. It's being used increasingly around the country in big blue cities like New York and San Francisco. It's being used in red states like Utah. Uh, It is one of the fastest growing political reforms in the country because it's a truly nonpartisan way to give voters more voice and more choice. Hmm. We're talking with David Daly. David Daly about ranked choice voting. About ranked choice voting. What does that mean? What What does it mean to have ranked choice voting? What does it mean? What does it mean to vote strategically? Indeed, that has been put on the table for this election here in Chicago. Will you vote strategically? Uh, this writer from Chicago Magazine said, "I love Sophia King." She makes sense to me. She marches right down the middle in between for public safety, for example, between Brandon Johnson, treatment, not trauma. And of course, Brandon Johnson is not saying that you don't arrest people, but he's saying the first line of defense is, first of all, to assess the situation properly and find out if someone is having a mental health episode. You don't need a gun. They need help there. Or do you look at uh, Dr. Willie Wilson and Paul Vallis's approach? I mean, Dr. Willie Wilson said, hunt them down like rabbits, but Paul Vallis, to be fair, is running on law and order. So, same thing. So, what do you think, everybody? Everybody, Call me at 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. Will you be voting strategically in this election? Um, You might have a favorite, but you might say, you know what, the polls are not giving them a shot. Do you think that's fair? Because sometimes that helps to incline us toward despair, um, Dave Daly. Sometimes the polls are wrong. Sometimes the polls are wrong. And sometimes there's fewer polls than ever because local news has been so hollowed out. Sometimes they're they're polling a certain portion of the population, but not the entire population because it's more difficult to do polls these days because everybody has cell phones than back in the day when they could just call everybody on a landline at home. We should not have to rely on outdated polls to come up with some sort of twisted calculus in our minds and do this kind of pirouette in the voting booth. Ranked choice voting gives voters the tools to vote smartly and simply, and it always produces the candidate with the widest and deepest support. You don't ever again have to go through this kind of difficult calculus before casting a ballot. Calculus that it's really, really easy to get wrong because we don't know who's electable and who's not electable, right? That's what an election is supposed to be for. So, A ranked choice election happens almost just like any other election, right? If somebody after the first round has 50% or more of the vote, they win. It's just like any other race. 
But if nobody has 50% of the vote, an instant runoff takes place. It happens immediately because we've already ranked second and third choices, right? Uh, So the candidate who's in last place is erased. The numbers get rerun. And the second place votes for that candidate come into play. So if your favorite candidate comes in last, you still get a second place vote. You rerun you rerun those results until somebody gets across 50%. You already have a runoff system in Chicago, but you pull everybody back to the polls weeks later. Between 1994 and 2020, there were 248 runoff elections in this country for major offices, a U.S. House, a Senate, governor, other big statewide elections. In 240 of those 248 elections, turnout declined between the primary and the runoff. Runoffs are expensive. Fewer people come out and vote. So why not take care of this all at once? Hmm. We're talking with David Daly. David Daly, the author of Rat Asked, that's right, and Unrigged. Uh, do you think that this would get us closer to a more democratic system? I mean, is this, is this a form of voting that is used around the world? I mean, how does it work exactly? Um, because if you're, how, how does it work? I mean, how does this push back against what you've been talking about for some time? Majority, well, excuse me, minoritarian rule, where the minority has been ruling. I mean, even Nikki Haley said, look, Republicans, we gotta win. We've lost seven of the late, uh, seven of the last eight presidential elections. We're losing. We're going to the White House, but we are losing. <laughs> we don't have these numbers, and the numbers are shrinking. Um, how does how would this work in a practical way? Because you you do bring up that you know we kind of have ranked choice because we have a runoff. Is that kind of like a soft version of it? A ranked choice election is a better version of a runoff. It's an instant runoff. It gives everybody a say in a runoff election without the added expense um, and work of coming back out to the polls six weeks later. Um, so what you always get is a winner who the most people want to have in office. We have too many people that get elected to office with 35% of the vote, right? And when you only need 35% of the vote to win in a nine person field, or sometimes even less than that, you don't even have to campaign and talk to everybody. You can run a base campaign, a campaign based on a single issue, based on a single community, um, when you have a ranked choice election, you have to go out and talk to everybody because those second place votes matter. When you can't win with 33% of the vote, when you need 50%, a candidate has to work differently. They have to think differently. They're incentivized to make outreach across the entire city, across all kinds of, of different neighborhoods and population and people who maybe they wouldn't have to talk to otherwise. And they have to campaign with a different kind of spirit. You can't be tearing folks down and running a super negative campaign when you also have to ask those people if you'll be their second choice, if their first choice doesn't win. So 
this changes the nature of elections for voters because it gives us more power and takes that power away from the polls and the strategists. But it also makes the politicians come closer to all of us. Hmm. You know, you do make the point that um, this does compel those who are running for office to want to campaign in a positive way, to tell me what you're going to do, not what the other person is not going to do, because you're trying to pick up votes and you want to be thought of in a kindly way by the electorate. So, you know, if I'm not your first choice, well, you might say, but you know, but they have some good qualities. Uh, But what do you see? I mean, it just, this race in Chicago is a lot. I mean, nine people. And people have felt that uh, Brandon, excuse me, Brandon, and Brandon and Willie Wilson and and Sophia King and Kim Buckner and uh, Jamal Green and Rod Sawyer and Paul Vallis and, uh, I mean, and Willie Wilson and the mayor. That and I hope I haven't forgotten anyone, but boy, oh boy, I'm looking across the stage in my mind. Uh, Chewy Garcia, that it's it's like an embarrassment of riches, if you will. I mean, you have some really some people who have, you know, who who served and served well for a long time, whether they've been in elective office or not, um, and to be told to vote strategically at this time. Um, it, it's just it's just very very interesting. You know, one just wonders if um, if this is a form of voting that is beginning to take root um, across the country. You're right. We see it in San Francisco. We see it in New York. What would it take to see it in Chicago and in other cities? What is the argument that could be made for it? You know, I think I think the best argument for ranked choice voting is exactly the kind of election that you all are having right now. <laughs> choice in an election ought to be a good thing. Having nine qualified, interesting candidates ought to be something that is appealing. Having five candidates from the, the black community ought to be a sign that the community has arrived in politics, that there are a number of viable leaders. But when you only have to choose one and somebody can win in a divided field with much less than 50 percent of the vote, when the work is put on voters to cast strategic ballots and to twist their brain into all kinds of calculus based on polls and fundraising reports uh, and thinking about who they want most and who they want least. That's making voters do too much work. This is an easier, simpler way to get to a true majority result and to make choice be a good thing for voters instead of being weaponized against us. Hmm. I'm talking with David Daly about voting strategically. Will you do that? Will you do that? In this article in Chicago Magazine, uh, Mr. McClellan says, look, I love this candidate. This candidate makes a lot of sense to me, but I will not be voting for said candidate because this candidate cannot win. 
just they're not polling well. Even though, have you gotten a call from the polls, everybody? More than likely not. So do we really know how anyone is doing? No. And we have seen a lot of dynamism in the polls. People are moving up and down, sideways, side to side. Uh, because every time we see a debate, every time we see them, we, we see something else. And so our vote changes. I'm not going to say our allegiances change, but certainly the vote does. So what do you think about strategic voting? Strategic voting. Call me at 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. Hey, Eric, how you doing, sweetie? Will you uh, be voting strategically or will you vote for the person that you really, really, really want to vote for? I mean, what do you think? What do you think about what will likely be a runoff. Who do you want in the runoff if we're going to have one? Who do you want? And would ranked choice voting, once you, when you have ranked choice voting, do you still have a runoff, David Daly? You have an instant runoff. Um, so, yes, you get all the benefits of a runoff, which is to say you end up with a candidate that has majority support. But you get to the runoff without having to come back to the polls, risking the huge decline in turnout, the additional expense of holding another election, just the nonsense of having to go through six more weeks and the expense of a campaign and all the ads on TV all that time. You get the election done at once, and you have the runoff between everybody. The election effectively becomes one big instant runoff in which nobody has to vote in with the kind of crazy strategic calculus you're talking about. They get to express the fullness of their opinion, vote for their top candidates, uh, and then and then we see immediately who wins. Hmm. What do you all think, everybody? What do you think? And then what do you think about Paul Vallis and critical race theory? How do you want our children taught in Chicago? How do you want our children taught in Chicago? He's been attending many meetings. You know, these meet and greets that you have with candidates. And most of his meet and greets are populated by people who are Republican, by people who are anti, um, who are pro charter schools who are pro-vouchers, you know, taking public money for their private means for a school, which is what happened after Brown v. Board of Education, quite frankly, uh, because white parents did not want their children to go to school with black kids. So they then used public funds to build private segregated schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I asked Paul Vallis about that. You know, because when I see when I see vouchers, when I see charter schools, so that's what I see. And certainly I want a great public school for every child. That having been said, we don't have the intentionality of creating that reality. We don't. If we wanted to have great public schools in every neighborhood, we would do that. Just like when we want to have war, we do that all the time. So let's talk about, I want to hear your thoughts. Who's number one? Who's number two for you? Who's number three? Who's number four? If you had ranked choice voting, if you voted strategically, how would you do it? Do you have a favorite candidate who you say they are not polling? They are not going to win. So I've got to figure out something else. At least if I vote for so-and-so, they will make what could be the runoff. 
What do you think about that? Call me at 773-763-9278. I've got about 90 seconds, David Daly. What do you want us to know? Because one of the things that you have been pushing against um, is minority rule. You said we're very, that's what we got in America today. And that's a very dangerous thing. What are the dangers of minority rule and how do we get out of it? You know, you're looking at them in this election. Whenever you have a field of candidates where you've got a whole bunch of people, you risk having someone win when a majority would actually like to see somebody else. Um, And so it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a mayoral race or whether you're talking about a U.S. House primary. When all of the action is effectively taking place in one election with multiple candidates, ranked choice voting is a tool that empowers voters to look past the polls, look past this calculus of who can win. It gets you to a true majority support. You don't have to make these kinds of compromises. You don't have to engage in this kind of strategy. Strategy and compromises that can be wrong because we don't really know. So let's make it simple. Uh, Ranked choice voting is as easy as one, two, three. It's spreading across the country. It would make your elections in Chicago better, simpler, much more majoritarian, likely more positive as well. Everybody get the book. The book's unrigged. Unrigged and rat asked. If you want to know why we are where we are and how we can get to a true democracy, these books are your guideposts. Yes. Lots more information on ranked choice voting at fairvote.org. 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 And 1-866-HOUR-VOTE if you have trouble at the polls. But go to fairvote.org. Go to 1-866-HOUR-VOTE. Keep that on your speed dial, everybody, and get out and vote. Don't let the minority control the majority. Let's talk about critical race theory and Paul Dallas. Many places where he's going. Critical race theory is not just about black people. It's about indigenous people. It's about women. It's about telling history as it was, not telling the telling history, not from the space of the oppressor, but maybe the oppressed too should have a voice. That's the move to Sam T. Jackson to in just a minute. We can change the world. Change the world. Change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Jackson Show. It's Friday, Santita Jackson Show. That's where my word. Uh, February 24th, 2023. Hope that you're getting ready for a wonderful weekend, everybody. We are, too, of course, on Tuesday, we will be giving you all the all coverage here at WCPT, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. And uh, on the mayoral election, you could vote in all 50 wards right now. Get out and vote, everybody. We've had a surge in participation at the beginning of the week, uh, four years ago. You had about 2,500 people who voted. More than 40,000 people this year had voted at the beginning of the week. So there is a tremendous amount of interest in this race. And um, why do you think that is? Is it uh, it because of crime or is it because of race or is it a combination of things? Uh, Indeed, several of the candidates, well, they even inspired passion because they talked about law, they talked about law and order, uh, they talked about crime. 
Uh, we're not talking about public school education as much. Uh, but, of course, corporate media have shaped this narrative. They have made this campaign about crime. And there is one person who stands head and shoulders above everybody else on being law and order. But he also opposes critical race theory. So we've got to talk about that. Critical race theory is not just about teaching about slavery and about black people. It's about telling the story of the indigenous. It's telling the story of women. It's telling the story of people from the perspective of um, the oppressed. So we need to talk about that. I mean, because there's there are a lot of people have a lot of voices, and a lot of voices are going to be excluded if we do not right the ship on the teaching of history. Um, indeed, Mr. Vallis says that you know if you teach history the way that Kimberly Crenshaw, the brilliant legal scholar who really crafted critical race theory, if you teach it that way, the white children are going to feel bad. Wow, really? <laughs> Let's talk about this, everybody. 773-763-9278. Let's get to some of the headlines so we can get to the rest of the show. In Chicago, we're going to have a high of 28 degrees, partly sunny. Minneapolis, St. Paul, praying for you all with all of that snow, along with 70 million people who have been dealing with this snowmageddon, all this insane weather that we've had. We even had snow over the Hollywood sign in L.A. What? Minneapolis-St. Paul, you'll have a high of 12 degrees today, everybody. The NBA is still on their all-star break, but they're about to return. The Hornets will be playing the Timberwolves, and the Nets will be facing off against the Bulls. In the meantime, we can't hockey to keep up company. Chicago will be playing the Sharks tomorrow. The Wild will triumphant over the Blue Jackets yesterday. Shut them out two to nothing, and they'll be playing the Maple Leafs tonight, everybody. Uh, guess what? Uh, the NTSB has said, at least preliminarily, that Norfolk Southern, could have completely prevented this disaster in Ohio, in East Palestine, Ohio. That's what they said. And in the meantime, Norfolk Southern is dealing with so much heat. Guess what they did? The railway industry, as you, as I have reported, has not been willing to grant paid sick leave to railroad workers. Well, guess what? Under massive political pressure coming from you, coming from you, in the midst of this Ohio crisis, Norfolk Southern has agreed to pay sick leave to 3,000-plus union workers. There is a silver lining in this, everybody. That has not happened before, but that is what they have promised to do. Indeed, this is the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, everybody. So we're praying for everyone. And indeed, the Secretary of Defense for the United States, Lloyd Austin, said, this will not be won on the battlefield. It will be won in, at the negotiating table. Those are just some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. You know, as we're fighting for freedom overseas, as we're fighting everywhere, you know, we want to own homes. That's part of the American dream, right? And so Team Hochberg is, is putting out a call to first-time home buyers. everybody. A first-time home buyer, which means you have not owned a home within the past three years. A first-time home buyer means you have not owned a home within the past three years. If that is you, you need to call Team Hochberg, your trusted local lender. First-time buyers made up just 26% of home buyers in the past year, down from 34% the year before, which is the lowest it's been, the lowest rate of home ownership that we've had in 40 years, everybody. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac want to turn these numbers around by incentivizing first-time home buyers. That, again, are people who have not owned a home in the past three years with substantially lower rates. Now, this could change at any time. You need to call Team Hochberg today. If you are in the Chicago area, if you earn less than $105,700, 
and have not owned a home within the past three years. It's very important, everybody. Call Team Hochberg at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID. Or if you want more information on what they can do for you, go to 56david.com. You need to see if you can qualify for these amazingly low interest rates, which could change at any time. We're not making this up. This could be you, everybody. This special offer can expire at any time. But don't miss this opportunity to secure these low rates, uh, to see if your kids, if you, if your grandkids can qualify for these amazingly low rates and help to build some wealth, some intergenerational wealth. Call them at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, or visit them at 56david.com. Let's talk about critical race theory. What is that? Well, we're going to talk about this, but this is what Paul Vallis has said about it. These are his own words on critical race theory. When you introduce a curriculum that is not only divisive, but a curriculum that further undermines the relationship of children with their parents, with their families, that's a dangerous thing. And for white parents, I mean, how are you going to discipline your child when your child comes home and your child has basically been told, you know, that their generation, their race, their parents, their grandparents, they have discriminated against others and they have somehow victimized another's race. Wow. And then he continued, for that matter, if you are a black child, how do you go home and listen to your parent when your parent has failed to be successful in addressing these historically racist institutional obstacles that have denied them a chance at equal opportunity? And then the interviewer, Mark Glennon, said, Paul, I often wonder if you're a black kid, why couldn't you become a criminal? If you're hearing this stuff in school, everybody with white skin is an oppressor. If you have black skin, you're the oppressed. That makes it pretty easy to justify pretty bad conduct, in my opinion. Mr. Vallis's response was, you're absolutely right. But what you're also doing, you're giving people an excuse for bad behavior. You're almost justifying. You're almost justifying. Uh, and then he ranted about Kim Fox. Uh, so, so you're right. You're absolutely right. Where's the accountability? You're a victim. What's happening is it becomes a justification for everything. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. You know what critical race theory is? So I want you all to talk to me about it. Um, we have got Dwight McKee, brilliant social scientist, and we've got Dr. Robert Starks, indeed, one of our leading academicians, he, but he's also an activist. That's what's always been so interesting about Dr. Starks. He always comes into these meetings with a bunch of papers under his arm, all this research that he does, educator, political consultant, and activist, and of course, from Northeastern Illinois University Center for Inner City Studies, and someone who has been a principal in our Chicago public schools. He's been on our show, indeed, he's home here. Dr. Michael Beyer, uh, former Chicago public schools principal. He's an educator and an education consultant. Let me, let me start with you, Dr. Beyer. Talk to me. Um, does this, does critical, what is critical race theory to your way of thinking? And does it justify, does it give black kids a reason and excuse to behave badly? Does it give white kids um, a reason to feel badly. So, so briefly, uh, critical race theory is uh, it, it's a law school uh, curriculum, if you want to call it that. It's not taught in kindergarten through high school. Critical race theory is being it's a red herring being used as coded language to frighten people 
Um, but if you want to talk about uh, tens of critical race theory, what it is, to my understanding, because I never went to law school and studied it, it's saying that what we see in society, the inherent racism and disparities, are caused by systems and structures, historical systems and structures. And so Paul Dallas, which is, what's frightening is that this man has been the superintendent of Philadelphia, New Orleans, Chicago. He was assigned by uh, uh, a former Republican governor in Illinois to oversee Chicago State University, which is our only local HBCU here in Chicago. And this man does not understand critical race theory. That does not excuse anybody or anything, or I should say doesn't excuse any behavior. What it does is explains what we see in society, which are historical disparities. And so you started off the top of the show talking about, uh, you know, new homeowners and black homeownership, especially in Chicago, is significantly lower. That can be explained through critical race theory. It's not blaming white people. It's not blaming black people. It's saying that there have been historical systems and structures like redlining, uh, contract selling that, yes, have been perpetrated by, you know, a handful of white people um, or more than a handful of white people, but not all white people. But as a result, that's what we see to this day. It's not, it's not giving anyone an excuse to blame or act out or act criminal in any way. It's simply explaining things. And Paul Vallis, is the, as an example, he's the son of Greek in, uh, immigrants, right? Does this mean we can't talk about, we shouldn't talk about Greek-Turkish, you know, anger and, and war. We can't teach about any history because that will just give him an excuse to be angry at Turkish people by his own reasoning. Mm. Dwight McKee, your thoughts? Well, you know, we've always had critical race theory. Gone with the Wind was critical race theory. Cuss's Last Stand was critical race theory. (laughs) Birth of a Nation was critical race theory. All of John Houston's movie was critical race theory. It's always been acceptable critical race theory, depending on what race you were critical of. That has always been the issue, is that it's always been acceptable as long as white people were the heroes. And it only becomes an issue when they become the anti-heroes. And the reality is that depending on what point of view you're taking, the people who suffered most from their victories see them as anti-heroes. And so Paul Vallis is in really in dangerous water, dangerous territory, because it's racism at its basic level, and it explains why he gutted the school systems everywhere he's gone. Because in his conscious and subconscious, he really does believe that black people are the reason for their victimization. And that we are who we are and do what we do because if you really look between the lines, because we are socially and genetically inferior, because that's the only way to explain our racism, our our situation. If we have not been victimized and you find us in the condition that we're in, then it has to be by our own hands. It has to be because it's something inferior in our culture and in our sociology. Otherwise, there's no way to explain why we are what we are. And if 
he, he has no, in my opinion, no justification to be in a mayor of a city that is 40 to 50 percent minority if that is the way he really feels about people of color and people who have been victimized by 400 years of racism and 400 years of oppression. You know, I want to hear from, you know, the academician here. I think we have uh, Erin Connolly up. If we, if we don't, we will have her up soon. But I'll tell you what, I'm trying to figure out as an academician how you see this, Dr. Robert Starts. I mean, because how do you tell the story of Tulsa? without talking about the fact that for the the first time in American history that a bomb was dropped on America was by white Americans who hired military veterans to fly military planes and drop a bomb, drop bombs on a black community, a black American community. How do you not tell that story? I mean, how how do you not, I I mean, how do you not tell the story of, Slavery. How do you not tell what happened to the to the indigenous people? We're, we're finding thousands, not scores, not hundreds, thousands of indigenous children buried up under these Catholic schools because we tried to make them white. How do you not tell that story? Are you serious right now? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, and the white is correct, as well as uh, Dr. Uh, McGee. Uh, I'm telling you, this is really serious. The origin of the, the theory is that it says, in effect, that America is racist, that it is uh, has a, uh, committed genocide on the indigenous people of this country, and that the the bulk of it, the base of it is embedded in the laws and the statutes of the country so that it, you know, it's self-perpetuating. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. How do you then talk about the history of the genocide against indigenous people? How do you talk about uh, slavery? Uh, how do you how do you talk about uh, inequality and racism if you cannot tell the true story of America? So critical race theory uh, forms the basis of true history in this country. And in effect, if you dispute or reject critical race theory, as Dwight said, you are saying to the world that uh, indigenous people, people of color, uh, who who suffer inequalities and racism are suffering that uh, on their own and that they are the cause of their own (laughs) injustices. Isn't that insane? Now, lastly, in Illinois, and this is something that Mr. Uh, Ballas has to deal with, uh, about 20 years ago, we began a process of putting together the requirement that in all public schools in the state of Illinois, and this is incorporated in law, has to teach black history in the public schools. And the same thing with Jewish history, a requirement. And we put a curriculum together to to do that. So would he dismiss that Illinois law if he became uh, the mayor of the city of Chicago? 
Good question. How, how would he well, how would he deal with that? Well, you tell me. I mean, because <laughs> uh, but, 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 but let me pivot to Dr. Byer because as a principal who oversees curricula uh, and a you know of all of these teachers, you know, you have teachers in Florida who are. They don't know what to do. They're like, I don't want to lose my job. But you know, what am I supposed to do? I mean, so what, Dr. Byer, what do you do? I mean, and, and how do you determine what is taught in a school? I mean, because aren't you, in education, aren't you supposed to be telling the truth? So all my colleagues, all my former colleagues, especially teachers, you know, former or current librarians uh, in Chicago and elsewhere, they're flabbergasted by this, and they watch what's going on in Florida, and they wonder if it's going to come to Chicago or elsewhere in the country. And the problem is that it has been, the curriculum has been outsourced to parent advocates and the most extremists, um, and it's being controlled by a handful of people like that who, you know, have somehow won the right to review curriculum. You know, they're not a trained educator. Doesn't even mean they, they graduate high school themselves. And so, as a you know, if, if Valis is elected mayor, fortunately, eventually, hopefully sooner than later, we'll have an elected school board, so he won't have direct control over Chicago public schools like he did, or like every other former current mayor does. Uh, however, it, it's still frightening. I think um, I believe, and there's plenty of evidence that shows that critical race theory is it's a red herring and it's being used to drive the privatization of education. And you see this happening that, um, I think, uh, as Arkansas that just passed, um, the right for, for families to get a voucher to choose their school and critical race theory is right there amongst it. it it's basically a tool being used to resegregate our uh, society by saying, well, I don't want my kid to learn about critical race theory because I don't want my white kid to hate himself. Um, so therefore, let's just, let's just destroy all public education. You know, that's what's going to happen. And Paul Dallas was the innovator of this. He created Walter Payton School, which is a public school. Oh, wait, hold on. How did he come up with that? you got to help me with that. Hold on. I have to interrupt you. Because you got to, because this, this is like I'm about to, like the top of my head is about to blow. How does this teach white kids that white kids hate themselves? You explain that to me. Uh, I mean, and, and, and the self-loathing of black children who still choose the white doll, um, what, 70-plus years after yeah. after this experiment. I mean, black children are still choosing the white doll as the right. smartest doll, the most beautiful doll. We're still doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what blew my mind is reading that quote from Dallas in the interview, he suggested that critical race theory teaches black kids to hate their own parents. I've never read that angle. I've heard people arguing, incorrectly so, that critical race theory will teach white people to to not respect you know their own families and whatnot because you know we and I'm white because it teaches us that we're all oppressors and whatnot. Um, that's the fear of these people, and it's it's incorrect because again, critical race theory, as I said in, in the beginning. It doesn't teach anyone to hate anybody. It teaches us to try to change the systems that have um, kept in place, you know, systems of privileges and and uh, oppressions over other people. It's not about individuals. It's about systems and structures. But Paul Dallas has created one of the most uh, segregated systems through selective enrollment schools here in Chicago. 
And I remember when he ran for mayor last time, I was a volunteer on Mara Enya's campaign. And he would uh, brag about creating Walter Payton uh, School, which is the number one school in the nation, not because of the curriculum, not because of the teachers. They're all wonderful. But they get that ranking because they select out any student who can't test in. And in Chicago, parents and children are forced and stressed to tutor or to tutor to tutor to get a 99th percentile. And the only families that have those resources tend to be white families. And so Walter Payton School is predominantly white now. And so he, he Dallas has created the assistance and he will continue as mayor. Absolutely. And remember, everybody, there's a direct relationship between parental income and high test scores or low test scores. I'm not saying that your child doesn't have to study, but I tell you what, if you went to college and you speak, you have a college vocabulary, you pass that on to your children because that's what they grow up around. And the tests are geared toward that. So I think we have Eric Connolly up, but I want to talk about this with you. I want you to call us at 773-763-9278 because I'm part of the first wave. You know, we were Walter Payton's before Walter Payton was. I mean, Whitney Young, when it opened, uh, the superintendent of schools pulled his daughter out of her school and put her in that one. Uh, Don't tell me. Back with more of the Santita Jackson show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Yes, 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 yes. Let's change the world. And you know what? Next week, Jewel, I am going to play a song that I sang with Chris Willis on an album that was released that we're going to re-release that I did mm, some 20-odd years ago. Heal the world. Heal our land. I'm going to bring that to you next week. Uh, back with more of the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 radio. Yes, that's right, Julie. You'll hear me singing next week. That having been said, let's get to it. Uh, we have got to talk about this. Aaron Connolly um, is joining uh, Dr. Robert Starks, Dr. Michael Byer, uh, former uh, uh, well, educational consultant, former principal in Chicago Public School System, Dwight McKee, brilliant social social scientist, and um, and of course my board operator, who is a social worker by training, wants to weigh in on this. But before we get to my board operator, Jewel, let's get to you. Um, and and you know you all keep calling in seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. And uh, Aaron Connolly, how do you teach your son? I mean, how how do you want this sweet baby to be taught? I mean, how and and, and the people he's got to go into the world with. I mean, what what do you make of Paul Vallis saying that this all this does is justify bad behavior in black children and make white children feel badly? Yeah, that's just a bunch of nonsense. It's, it's, um, it, reading that quote was infuriating as as a mom, as someone who values history and education. And Paul Vallis is touting his resume, you know, reforming, quote unquote, the schools around our nation, when in reality he sells them out to private corporations. He privatizes the school system. He guts curriculum that is localized, that is focused on 
the reality of of what our nation stands for. And that is just history. This isn't a theory. This is history, American history, and how I teach my son and um, how I was taught by my mom uh, growing up was the real history. And sometimes that, that history is hard. And, you know, I, I question some of her methods in introducing me to serious topics at a very, very young age. <laughs> um, I, you know, but I think it's necessary to tell our kids the truth, to show them the world that they are in, whether they are going to be leaders, whether they are going to be voters, whether they are going to be just students and humans existing here. We have to tell them the truth. And the more we tell them the truth, the more likely they are to trust the folks that are trying to help them, right? I think we've all had this experience of disillusionment when we find out something about our history as a nation or our parents, right, that is that is jarring as you grow older. Preparing kids with, with the truth of our history. When we talk about the story of Emmett Till, we have to tell the truth. We can't pretend this was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We have to hold ourselves accountable. How are we teaching accountability for these kids growing up to be good citizens? If we can't even hold ourselves accountable as a nation for the atrocities that we've committed upon our own people, upon our brothers and sisters who still feel that generational trauma today. So it's a gaslighting all over again. Right. When you still and many folks here on our on the, the panel on the show, Santita, I know your family is from the South. There is still a, a system that exists that is very different depending on what you look like in certain towns, in towns in Illinois. So this this is not this is not a history that um, we are that we can put behind us. People are still living these these types of things. And the only way we find understanding is by holding ourselves accountable. That's what that's what Paul Vallis is saying he doesn't think we need to do. And that doesn't help anyone. And white kids feeling badly, please. I teach my son that he has all of the privilege in the world. He's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little white boy, and he will grow up with the privilege. But he is called to recognize injustice around him to be a leader in that and to ask hard questions and also to apologize and hold himself accountable, right? That's what we have to teach our men and our women throughout the entire country. And, you know, and that's but you know what he, he, he also has to be, I mean, Aaron, the fact is privilege, yes, but the reason he's over here is because he wasn't privileged in Europe. You're at the bottom of the pile in Europe. Tell that part of the story, too. That's the only reason you're here. We're going to get to that, right? We are either people in this country descended from indigenous folks who are the rightful owners of this land. They were brought here as slaves. They arrived as immigrants to this country, period, right? Our family arrived here as immigrants, and that that process, you know, was was not necessarily a privileged one. And um, I think... Wait, you know what? You know, wait, 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 wait. I have to interrupt you here. Let's, Let's engage everybody truthfully. You know, because that's part of the white narrative. I'm an immigrant. No, you're a refugee. <laughs> if you're an Irish, if you if you're Irish, you're you're a refugee, because um, you were starving over in Ireland. You were starving in England too. Can you say Oliver Twist? You were struggling in France. Can you say the French Revolution? You were struggling everywhere you were. That's why you're here. 
to go play this with me. Oh, I came here and I just wanted to work hard. No, no. And that's not what you're saying. I'm like, no, stop it. You're here because you were at the bottom where you were. And then you come here and you're trying to put me under the pile. And I'm telling you, that's not going to work anymore. That's over. You got to tell the truth about why we're here. You got to tell the truth about the land we stole. You got to tell the truth. If America is going to be blessed, America has been blessed by God. Now, bless God and tell the truth so we can get right. I mean, really. Thank you, Santita, for for talking about refugees and people fleeing fascist regimes and the immigrant debate we are having right now that's reignited um, is is similar, right? The, the, The people that came to this country were also fleeing oppression, economic devastation, Similar to places like Venezuela right now. So, hey, Venezuela's oil. That's the only problem. These people are running away from Venezuela. They don't want to leave Venezuela. We're trying to starve Venezuela like we're trying to starve Cuba. We make these men and women of color who want to be free, we make them pay. And we need to stop it. Dr. King said it so clearly, Dwight, before I get to my board operator, said it so many years ago. He said, America's arrogance, your hubris, if you will, your excessive pride and arrogance is going to get you in trouble. Because what is going to happen? Some nation, you won't even know their name, China, and they're going to rise up and get you straight. The most powerful economy, the biggest economy in the world right now, according to the McKinsey Company, one of the most exclusive financial firms on earth. They said it is China. It is not the United States. Good American, you think that makes me feel great? Dwight? Very quickly. Before I get. Yeah, come on. Well, when you live in the thought of reality. Hello? Yeah, uh-huh. When you live in mythology rather than reality, that's a self-esteem issue. That's a self-concept issue. And the fact that these people have to create myths about themselves, to feel better about themselves, meaning they're operating at a level of insecurity that needs to be investigated. Because it is that level of insecurity that creates this, this false superiority complex that puts them in a position to think they have to run the world and that people have, need to be underneath them for them to be successful and legitimate, that God has placed them in a position that everybody has to be underneath them for them to feel good about themselves. Um, it's very interesting that that if you uh say that the Holocaust never happened because you don't want Germans to feel bad about themselves, they will legitimately run you out of town. But you can have the argument that that, that slavery was not as racist as it was and be set up as a legitimate academician in academic circles because you don't want you know white people to feel bad about themselves. The inconsistency is very glaring to me. And anyone who can think. Uh, now, my board operator, Jewel, Generation Zier, um, fresh out of college, really, and um, new into this, into this, you know, just as an adult. I mean, you are a young adult. You felt so compelled by this conversation that you wanted to you wanted to be a part of it. And and I certainly welcome it as we 
you know, continue to bring in Dr. Starks and Dr. Byer and Dwight McKee and Aaron Connolly. And you have a background in social work. What do you think about this, um, about someone who could be mayor who would say that all critical race theory is going to do, telling the story the way it actually happened, is just going to make white kids feel bad. And it's going to give, it's going to justify uh, bad behavior in black children. Thank you so much, Santita, for letting me be on and join this wonderful panel today. Um, yeah, I, I really felt compelled to talk about this. Um, you know, my perspective comes from, as you said, newly, I graduated last year uh, from university with a bachelor's in social work. And um, I did not learn about critical race theory until my third year of college. And even as somebody that kind of, I guess, like considered myself to be quote unquote woke, you know, when you're a social worker, when you have that kind of heart and that mindset, that's why you go into social work. Cause you're like, I see all the struggles people go through, you know, you want more. I don't know what I don't know is where you start. And then you're kind of like, I want to know what I don't know. That's what brings you there. Um, anyway, when I learned about it, the biggest thought that I remember having is why wasn't I taught this sooner? And why are none of my peers outside of the social work curriculum taught about this? Um, and it really, it, it was a big deal for me. And, um, you know, and, and also having a completely all white cohort of white women, all of us um, studying this curriculum, I, I think it really opened everyone's eyes. Um, I really liked Dwight McKee's point about the Holocaust. I was going to bring that up as well, that, um, you know, I never once I learned about the Holocaust at I think 11 was the first time. And. It's a reoccurring theme in American public school education, and I never once felt bad as somebody that is German, <laughs> um, you know, that that happened. Um, and I just want to also say um, that as a white person that has lived in poverty growing up, who generations of my family have lived in poverty. I have no generational wealth. Um, I wish I knew about this sooner because critical race theory helped me understand my own struggles as coming from a poor background, a poor family, um, and why that was. And I put a lot of inner blame in, on myself about that, especially growing up. And it wasn't until I got into college that I realized well, it's not just on me. It has nothing to do with me. It's the way that these systems are set up in our country. And also, it's so much bigger than me. Um, so, so I just wanted to provide that perspective. Um, and then lastly, you know, the idea of it making white children feel like they hate themselves. Um, I will say I remember back, I think we learned about slavery in like fifth grade was the first time I heard about it um, or like really learned about it in school. And there were some like feelings of maybe 
white children feeling a little bit like that. But I would like to counter and say critical race theory teaching the history is the answer to children not feeling like that. When you educate from a standpoint of this is American history, just like we did with the Holocaust, you're going to alleviate any of that um, like fear-based education, um, any tinge of that that you might have without teaching critical race theory. So it doesn't make sense to me that it would cause those kind of feelings to stir up in white children. To me, I believe it would do the opposite. Well, I tell you what, Lorraine is saying, thank you, board operator. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jewel is saying, tell it. I mean, because this is really about, uh, I don't know how you, I don't know how you teach children, Dr. Byer, without teaching children. I mean, are we trying to teach them or indoctrinate them? I mean, what, what, what's going on here? Dr. Byer. Indoctrination on, uh, on critical race theory <laughs> or in general. Just in, ge- I mean, in general, because this is to me, this is just a piece of it, right? It's just, it's just a piece. I mean, because if you're not going to tell, if, if you're not teaching history, if you're not telling the truth, you're not teaching history. It's just, well, it's just, it's that, it's that simple to me. Yeah, and I want to point out that you don't have to go back to slavery or you know the founding of this country to talk about the systems and structures. We're talking about recent history. I mean, the wealth gap between black and white can be accounted for almost entirely by the GI Bill not being given to black veterans after World War II and then continued on. And even just recently, there's, uh, you know, I do real estate on the side and, and there's articles almost every you know month about how a, a home owned by a black family will be appraised at a lower rate, a lower you know, amount if there are signs that a black family lives there. But that's not because the appraiser walks in and says, I'm going to price this lower because the black family is living here. What's happening is that those systems and structures, those historical systems and structures that we have failed to address and change, is that we're, we're all taught to devalue blackness, and so that's what's happening. We can blame the appraiser, but that's not the point of it. That's not going to change blaming one or two appraisers. What has to change is that we have to educate people. people. And that's what has to happen. We don't have to go back hundreds of years. It's happening right here and now. And when you put a person like Paul Vallis as mayor of Chicago in control, and even if he doesn't have direct control over the school system, he'll have direct control over the police department. He'll have direct control over the housing department. All of these departments and systems and structures that have billions of dollars in budgets to influence people's lives for good or better or worse, he has control over And so for a person who just goes off, clearly not understanding critical race theory, clearly not understanding what it means to teach a child is frightening. And it just can't happen. Hmm. Dr. Starks. Yes. Yes. This is simply, to put it in the simplest terms, the denial of critical race theory is simply the denial of the fact of racism, which, of course, includes slavery, inequality, both economic and social inequality, genocide of the indigenous people, religious uh, freedom, denial of the history of the struggle for uh, religious uh, freedom in this country, which 
really comes down to, as you stated, essentially indoctrination rather than teaching. And in effect, what it really does, it comes down to blaming the victim, blaming the victim. And that it has historically been the case in this country. Uh, most of the propaganda and indoctrination boils down to blaming the victim. So African-Americans blame themselves for their inequalities. That is the reality, and that's what we have to fight against. Mm -hmm. Aaron, I mean, we have an election. Oh, I'm sorry. Please jump in. Yes. Yeah, again, uh, can you... Can you understand that when you deny critical race theory, you are telling indigenous children that the reason why uh, uh, their parents, their ancestors uh, suffered from uh, genocide is because of them. They're inferior. They're crazy. Well, or maybe you know, maybe they deserve to be buried up under these schools. There you go. I, I, they deserve it. Right. These, these tens of thousands of kids we are finding who have been buried, who were disappeared. Are you serious right now? Mm-hmm. And wait a minute, because the way, as I was reading the press reports, Mr. Vallis has been going to these meet and greets, and you can't control what people are going to say at the meet and greets, but, you know, people you attract who you attract. And... Um, and so he's kind of danced around the issues, according to the reports. But the fact is, these people see in him a light, a beacon, who will stand for them. I want vouchers. I want charter schools. These public schools, I don't want my children in there with these dangerous kids. Because, see, I went to the Walter Payton of my day, which was Whitney Young, because it was only one. Okay, and everybody fought like mad to get in there, and I get it. That having that having been said, I think it's a horrible thing that you still that what happened to Inglewood, what happened to Dunbar, what happened to Dusable, what happened to Finger, what happened, what happened, what happened. You've got brilliance all over town. It is black, it is white, it is brown, it is yellow, it is red, it is straight, it is binary, it is non-binary, it is everything. Everybody matters. Mm-hmm. And this is shameful what they're doing. And I think that he, Mr. Vallis, should stand up against this. If you're going to be my mayor, win, lose, or draw. Because you can win a race and you can lose the war. Yeah. And this is not right. It's not right. Dr. Beyer, I mean, because, you know, because Dr. Beyer has fought, 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 and, and, has, been, and has been beaten up. But you are, you're bloody but unbowed. <laughs> because you have... <laughs> You know, I mean, so go on, talk to me, because, I mean, you've got a principle. Yeah. What, what is the principle to do? Well, well, again, that's just one person. We have to make sure that people in charge of these systems and structures have an open mind about these things, and he's not it. But I want to point out that when he was superintendent of New Orleans after the hurricane, that was used as an excuse to reconstitute the school district, and they privatized it. They made it almost entirely charter. And what happened is... Black educators, which New Orleans has a long history, as you know, uh, of, of you know, black people thriving at, at, and suffering at different times, but there are a lot of black educators who were forced out after he charterized the public schools. And, so, and you saw some of the things happen. He helped kick off the trend here in, in Chicago, which we brought charter schools and selective enrollment and all these different schools to get parents' choice, which is another red herring, right? But as a result, 
it's, it's a lot of black educators have lost their jobs and you've seen a black exodus in Chicago. So instead of the black population thriving and, and you know, benefiting, you see the opposite under leadership by people like Paul Vallis. And so what a principal can do is just hold their own and refuse to, you know, just refuse to bow down to this fear that's uh, created by all this hysteria over critical race theory and continue to insist on teaching black history, indigenous history, Latinx history, and, and personal pet peeve, black history uh, it should be more than just covering sports and pop stars and the same five people like Dr. King, but there's you know, a whole list of uh, very important black people and principals have to push for this. There's, there's plenty of literature and plenty of support out there and educators have to stand up and do the right thing and not worry about the blowback from the, themselves. They have to do what's right. Well, you know what? I want you to stay right here. We're going to talk a little bit more on the other side on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. Everybody like and share, like and share the Santita Jackson and Friends page. We're talking with this wonderful panel, those who can stay, about this issue. And I'm so glad that you joined today, Jewel, because we need your perspective. And this is not a conversation for black people. It is not a conversation for white people, brown people, indigenous people, yellow people. Red people. No, no, no. It's a, it's a conversation. This is, we are an American family. Reverend Jesse Jackson has often said we came over here in different on different ships. So we're in the same boat now. This is the American family. Like it or not, we're a family. And in order for us to get well, we're gonna have to get right. And the only way you can get right, my grandma Gertrude, God rest her soul, said there's one way, it's the right way. And the right way is truth. Not your truth, not my truth. There's no such thing. Truth is neutral. Truth is truth, and a lie is a lie. There is no gray. I have a few more minutes on the other side, but I want to hear from you, Dwight, and Dr. Starks, and Dr. Baya, and um, and and Jewel, and Aaron. I want to get some closing thoughts. Thank you, Dr. Knighton. Thank you, Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams. Thank you, David Daly. Everybody, get out and vote. And Chevrolet, I wish I'd had this information while I had Mr. Ballas on. I didn't have it. But now I've got it. And now vote on it. Back with more. On the other side, on the Santita Jackson Show, you know we'll be talking about this on Keep Over Live on Sunday. At 7 a.m. Central Standard Time, get your iHeart app so you can listen to us live, everybody. Patriot AM, 1150 out of California is our home station. So go on. We'll be talking about this and other things. Love you, everybody. 